This is good old boy Mike from Sips, Suds, and Smokes podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 170, Caddyshack Movie Review. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, we had a week off, but we're back. So what's new in pop culture in your world? Hey, Chris. Yeah, I uh, I want to apologize to the listeners. We didn't record last week because I was a little bit too busy with work stuff. So it was a last minute audible and uh, unfortunately was not able to make the show. But we're going to we're going to work extra hard to make this week's uh, doubly exciting, if that's OK with everybody. Oh, I'm sure we will. I'm so sure so we you will. had a week off. Have you been able to partake in any pop culture other than, you know, when you weren't working? Yeah, indeed, I have. I uh, I had a chance to watch a few things that were not really on my radar. I sort of mm-hmm. fell into this lull where there was nothing mainstream big um, that I was interested in or that was was available yet. So I started to dig into Netflix and Amazon a little bit and look for stuff that I thought I might enjoy. And the first thing I checked out was a French series on Netflix called Lupin. It's uh, oh. it's five episodes in the first season, and I believe it's already been picked up for a second season. Have so, you heard about this, Chris? Yes, so my wife started watching this, and she's like, I think you would like this. But I she's agree. watching it without like me. It. So. Yeah, no, it was it was good. It got good reviews, and a few of my friends, it, it dropped like, maybe two months ago so it's been a it's been a bit and um no it's a it's uh so lupin is french for wolf or it's a variation on the french word for wolf so when i heard lupin i just assumed it was gonna be about werewolves and i thought i'm not interested and it wasn't until a few of my friends watched it and started telling me about it and they're like no don't get confused don't read into the name just it's it's the name of the character it's like house md he's not a carpenter because his name is house just watch the show it was it was sort of like that his name's lupin don't read into it and he's the he's a quote gentleman thief and it's it's about a a rogue he's a con artist he's a thief he's a charlatan but he's always the capital g gentleman about it he's trying not to hurt the innocents it's sort of that robin hood idea of the rob from the rich to give to the poor the you know clear the names of those who have been falsely accused sort of that kind of theme and it was it was quite good um like i said five episodes they're all about 45 minutes it ends on a bit of a cliffhanger uh which i think certainly helped uh, propel it forward for a season two, which is in the works right now. So I'm looking forward to that. And then uh, I had a chance to watch uh, a documentary. Oh, wait, did you say documentary? I did indeed. For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. I've, met, I've mentioned before on the show, I've got you know, two young boys and my youngest son, he's eight. And he came up to me the other day and he was like, daddy, 
Did you know that uh, such and such a volcano uh, erupted in 1981 and scientists estimated that it had 1,000 tons of ash that was sent into the air and they're predicting that it could possibly erupt again in the next two years. I'm like, how do you know this information? (laughs) He's like, oh, I watch a documentary. And I'm like, oh, documentary, that's cool. He's like, I like the documentary song from the podcast. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's, it's, somebody likes it. Woo. Nice. So, anyway. Well, like I said, it's, it's growing on me. Yeah. That's so good. the, uh, the documentary, the, the documentary I watched this week was mm-hmm. about the Olympic sprinter from Jamaica, Usain Bolt. And it was oh, okay. called I am Bolt. And it's basically a biography on, on who he is and how he got to be where he, where he is and his tremendous amount of success and the tremendous amount of hard work that it took to become literally the fastest sprinter in the world. He holds the world record. He has held the world records for years. It was it was fascinating. I mean, I, I like sports documentaries. Even bad sports documentaries are usually pretty good. But Bolt is such a charismatic guy, and he has a very positive attitude. And it, again, it's this idea of a kid from an island who you know didn't grow up in the lap of luxury and didn't have opportunities just thrust upon him. He had to work hard and had to, in many cases, sort of make his own opportunities. And when there was a a, a recognition of his ability, he was nurtured by uh, his family, by his coaches, by his teachers, by his friends. Like people around him understood that hey, you could be you could be great. You could be even greater than you think you can be. And, uh, it was, it was good. It was a really, really sort of feel good story about, uh, an athlete who worked hard to, uh, to achieve tremendous success. So, you know, that's, a, I'm a soft touch. That's always a, a good documentary for so, me. I, I assume you have not seen it. No, I haven't. I have a question for you on the document. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this came up in the documentary, but you can answer it for me. Is that his real last name bolt? Yes. Like, yeah. what are the chances, you know, I mean, his last name is Bolt and he's really fast at running, you know, like, yeah, no, not like uh, his name is like, you know, Usain Slug or something, yeah. you know, but what else is he going to be? Usain Bolt, he's better be fast, right? So. Exactly, exactly. And then uh, the one, one other quick thing, um, mm-hmm. again, I'm, I was already, I think that Usain Bolt one was on Amazon, if I remember correctly, Amazon Prime. Uh, another one that I watched on Netflix that I think just dropped this week is uh, a new Netflix original movie called Beyond the Wire. And it stars Anthony Mackie, who is the exceptionally handsome gentleman who plays the Falcon in the Marvel superheroes franchise. Um, And uh, this is sort of a a sci-fi, well, not sort of, it is a sci-fi-ish movie. takes place in the not-too-distant future where there is um, a war in Russia, like a civil war. And of course, America has sent soldiers to protect the innocents. And there are um, like autonomous robots that the military controls to help defend the people. And, you know, you end up learning they also had these robots doing some offense. And um, it, it's the the story of a drone pilot at the beginning who is safe in the U.S. who basically flies drones like you would play video games and has this phenomenal kill count and makes a mistake in the first five minutes of the movie. And they're like, well, you know what we think you need? You need a little uh, perspective. So we're going to send you to the active combat zone so that you get a better sense of the people that you are actually shooting on with these drones. Um, And that should give you that perspective. We think you'll need to be a better drone pilot. And then, of course, he gets thrown into this um, this whole action adventure sequence with um, with Anthony Mackie as his superior officer. And the two of them go on like this special mission to find a a terrorist leader and uh, 
it's it was really good. I really enjoyed it. It's like action adventure, but the characters are are both have interesting backstories that get fleshed out really well, and the combat sequences are really good. And it's not like overly sci-fi. Yeah, the robots are there, but th- it's not about the robots. It's just there are a few small details that are a little sort of sci-fi-ish that are important to the plot. But for the most part, it's it's more of a moral tale about you know when two when two huge countries are fighting, there's always going to be casualties and. Just because your leader and my leader are saying that our countries are at war, the people that are caught in between, sometimes they have more in common than you think. So it was good. I really enjoyed it. I thought it ran a little long. I thought maybe it was about 15 minutes longer than it needed to be, especially the second hour I found. There was a lot of like, yeah, okay, we get it. Just keep moving this forward. But um, when Netflix drives a dump truck full of money to your house and backs it up and says, here's all the money, make a special effects movie, you you take the money and you make a special effects movie. So. But anyway, no, I, I really enjoyed it. It was called um, Beyond the Wire. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I had a few good ones coming out this week. Or pardon me, Outside the Wire, not Beyond the Wire. Sorry. Nice. Oh, okay. Um, I have a couple of things I want to mention uh, just over the last two weeks. So first of all, my, my sons, they got their report cards. And the reason I mention that is because we have a local comic book store here in town. And they have this program where when you, if the kid brings in the report card for every A they get, they get a free comic book. Trying to encourage, you know, good grades, right? So I, 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 call, I call them up and I'm like, hey, is, is this program still going on? And they said, because of COVID, we've suspended it. So I, I thought, well, I'm still going to take my kids in anyway and I'll buy them comic books. You know what I mean? For every A that they got. And of course, you know, my oldest son has like straight A's. So he gets lots of comic books. <clears throat> so we went in there and they also had a few uh, like Star Wars action figures, like the retro ones for sale old ones sorry like the original from the 80s or the new no. reprinted ones that just look original. like those no original not, okay. not those new crap ones like the actual original ones like you know out of the package they were like you know used obviously and they of were course. for sale do you remember a couple weeks ago when i mentioned what my favorite star wars action figure was um yes you said it was one of the luke skywalkers we had this conversation i don't remember which one it was a luke skywalker action figure bespin luke from the empire Strikes right Back. in the brown outfit yes they had yes. it there so I bought it. Awesome. It was so awesome, man. So it's now over on my my mantle. It's over there. I'm looking at it as we speak over on the shelf. Looks great. I just love it. It's Best Ben nice. Luke is there. Only cost me 10 bucks. I couldn't believe it. 10 wow, bucks. That's a good, like, that's a good pickup. Yeah, I'll get that. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was I a couple of people contacted me. And they were like new listeners to the podcast. And they had nice things to say. So it was all good. They were like, hey, we really like this podcast. Where did you come up with the name? Like, where did you get the name Pop Goes Your World? That's such a great name. And so I thought, well, you know, I could kind of go into it and explain it, but I thought it'd be better if I did it with song. Oh my God. Of course it is. Of course. So, so now any opportunity to <laughs> sing a song. Now keep in mind now I, this, I'm rehashing something cause this is a song that I originally debuted last year, but I, I wanted to bring it up again cause I really think it tells a story. So here we go. Pop goes your world. Old, 
but I sure ain't lame. Got the high score on the Pac-Man video game. Man, I'm lit. Pop goes your world. I'm hippie as Pop goes your world. Kids today, you know it ain't no joke. That's why, my man, why I'm so woke. I'm about the love. It would just be easier just to kind of tell the story through song. So there you go. I like right. it any we, the second I, yeah, we, time. Uh, well, I, I, I do. I did a little bit, but I, I still feel it's a little too long. Yeah. So for people to listen to this show on like 1.2 or 1.5 times speed, it should be fine. Yeah. So, so there's that. So anyway, so there's that song. So not only do I do songs, of course, but I also tell great dad jokes around here because I'm so old, you know, but I, even though I'm really young and hip, I tell dad jokes. So here we go. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, I figured since we're doing Caddyshack this week, I should do a golf dad joke. Okay. So Derek, how many golfers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Oh, I, I have no idea. Four. Oh my God. Yes. Tell you about this Dukes of Hazard remake I've been imagining. What are you doing? Some of this stuff was just too wacky for me. I am the crotchety old guy who just hates everything new. They're always having parties. And then I also watch Three's Company. This is my lot in life. Nostalgia is a powerful drug. It's him and so and so in a romantic relationship, and they open an ice cream store. And it's a Dinklage. He right. was always making moonshine. He went on to do gay porn. Oh my my my! What the hell? All right, my friend, last week you nominated and we reviewed the 2012 Seth MacFarlane comedy, Ted. And this week it was over to me to nominate a movie. So I decided to go with a raunchy comedy of my own. And I went all the way back to 1980 with the Harold Ramis directed movie, Caddyshack. Now, since we try and match up our movie picks, you know, with similar themes, um, I just figured it was appropriate that I nominate a raunchy comedy. I was actually considering going with Porky's. But I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't. And I'll tell you why. We've mentioned before how a lot of these old Gen X comedies, how they don't really hold up very well, you know, mostly because of, you know, their position on gender and race and sexualities. And a lot of those old movies, they just, they just don't fly with today's audiences. But I'll tell you what, and I'm really curious to get your take on this. But for me, Caddyshack has aged like a fine wine. 
I think it's just as good today as it was back in 1980. 40 years to me has been very kind to this movie. So Derek, do you agree or disagree right off the top with my take on this movie? Does Caddyshack hold up? Yeah, I, I agree to a certain extent. I have, I have a qualified yes, I agree. Okay. So before we had our opportunities to watch this movie this week. You and I have already watched Caddyshack together a couple of times, mm-hmm. and we've seen it a bunch of times. So I, I know that we both like this movie. We both enjoy this movie, and we've talked about this movie many times, both on the show and off the show. So this this is sort of that slow ball pitch across the plate. Like, there's going to be a lot of agreement with tonight's show, I think, and a lot of us just laughing at our own jokes. But um, – I hadn't watched the full movie end to end probably in a couple of years, probably since the last time you and I watched it together when we Mm -hmm. went to see ZZ Top. Um, So it had been a couple of years and there were certainly some areas I thought, "Mm, I don't know if I'm not finding this funny because I'm so familiar with the joke that I'm just, it doesn't work on me anymore. Or if maybe with a little perspective and a little maturity, uh, it's not as funny as I thought it was. But for the most part, I agree, especially when we compare this to some of the other comedies from the 80s that, and even some of the late 70s stuff that we've watched where there are some huge red flags. This one has a handful. Um, I'm not saying that it, it completely holds up because it doesn't. It's a product of its time. And we'll, mm-hmm. we'll sort of touch on those a little bit. But the very broad strokes definitely hold up. And I think largely because the humor comes from the antics of, of these characters and what they do on the golf course. And for for a lot of it, I think a lot of that stuff could, in theory, to some in some way, still happen today. So the humor still holds up; it's still relevant. Yeah. So the movie was directed by Harold Ramis. It was produced by Doug Kenny. It was written by Kenny and Ramis and Brian Doyle Murray. It was released on July the twenty fifth, back in nineteen eighty, uh, with a budget of four point eight million dollars, and it grossed sixty million dollars at the domestic box office. But not only that, it's gone on to become. One of the most legendary comedies in history. And and the thing is, I can't believe we're just getting around to this movie now in our sixth season here on the podcast. Like you mentioned, you and I watched this together back in 2016 at when we went to the ZZ Top concert. And that was before you were even on the podcast. We just we watched it and we did a full length uh, audio commentary on the movie. Uh, it was, it, we knew then we should be doing a podcast together, I guess. But the movie, like I say, was pretty successful. And I took a look at the the domestic box office for 1980. Man, oh man. 1980 was a really good year for movies. Like, so the number one movie at the box office was The Empire Strikes Back. Like, it just dominated the box office. It it doubled the number two movie, which was nine to five. And then other movies like Stir Crazy and Any Which Way You Can and Private Benjamin. There was Smokey and the Bandit 2, The Blues Brothers. Um, Popeye and then Cheech and Chong's next movie and Caddyshack, you know, but even other movies that are in there like Flash Gordon, which we mentioned last week with, you know, like there were so many good movies like Raging Bull and Xanadu, (laughs) God, My Bodyguard, one of my favorites. So God, that was a great year in movies. It just makes me realize God, Gen X movies are good, but uh, yeah, no, the the movie was pretty successful, but it certainly wasn't a runaway hit at the time. You know, like it finished 14th, you know, at the box office in, in 1980. I think it's been more one of these things that's just kind of grown over the years into yeah. this legendary movie that it is. When it came out, it was just this little small comedy that, you know, the, the studio didn't put any sort of, you know, big marketing push behind or anything like that. It just kind of came out. And I mean, Ramus was pretty successful 
you know, coming into this movie. But I don't know, the movie, just it wasn't a huge hit at the time, you know? Right. I think so. I think you sort of touched on it a little bit. With a lot of these movies, the Gen X movies, the late 70s, early 80s movies, they did okay. Or like 14th in the box office is, is not terrible by any stretch of the imagination. But you've got to think of the time in which these came out. It came out in the movie theater. You had a limited opportunity to see it in the theater. And then you had never had any expectation of ever being able to see it again. Like home video wasn't really a thriving medium in 1980. Um, but eventually they came out with things like uh, HBO or in Canada we had the First Choice or Super Channel, which eventually became First Choice Super Channel. Um, so eventually when they came out with pay cable, a lot of these movies were thrown in there. Uh, and you would, they would be on over and over and over again. And I think that was where a movie like Caddyshack really started to pick up steam yep. is it became more readily available to people who had cable television, whether it was like one of these pay services or even just regular cable TV. Um, and as home video became more popular, it was a, you know, a good pick that you could just, Hey, what are we going to rent? Like, Hey, I worked at Blockbuster a long time. And as a video viewer and a person who worked in the video store, there's off, there used to be a lot of pressure and discussion when groups came in to find something everyone could agree on. So usually you picked up a couple of movies and something like Caddyshack is a good fallback. You're like, well, we'll rent this new release. I don't know how good it's going to be, but let's get Caddyshack. That way, if this one sucks, we know we've got a good one in the, in the hopper to see second. And I think that that's helped this movie tremendously. And then I think also you have, um, Tiger Woods bringing golf mm -hmm. to the mainstream in a way that it had not previously been available in the mid nineties when he had his incredible run. And suddenly Tiger Woods becomes a pop culture superstar in addition to being a super duper athlete. And you have, you know, uh, this person of color who is the, the best golfer in the world. And suddenly you have this huge audience is now interested in golf. And as the economics of the world start to change, more and more people have a little bit more money and they start taking up a hobby like golf that up until, you know, the late 80s, early 90s was pretty much exclusively old white guys because it was expensive. You had to buy and or rent the clubs. You had to have all the right, you know, the accoutrement. You had to dress the right way. You had to often pay a membership fee. Like these were barriers that prohibited a lot of people who were not old white guys from becoming members of golf courses and having any interest in this sport. And as time has progressed and that has started to change, a movie like Caddyshack is suddenly now something people who are now discovering golf go, ah, I'm interested in this now. What else we got? Caddyshack's a, a comedy about golf. And it's got all these big names. Let's give it a go. So there's been a lot of things that have helped this movie indirectly become bigger than it ever was and it keep is keeping it at the top of the pop culture mindset. That's a, that's a good point because I think it was ESPN that, that named this movie as the funniest sports movie of all time. But you know, you got to remember <clears throat> back in 1980 golf was not cool. You know, no. like you mentioned, this is before Tiger Woods. You sort of, you know, got mainstream audiences actually caring about, you know, the, the masters and golf and, 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 and golf just did not appeal to mainstream audiences. You know, it was, it was more like you said, it was more of an elite game, you know, yeah, very so, much capital E elitist. Uh, absolutely. That's why I think originally they, making this movie, um, you know, they, they wanted to make it about the caddies and, and that's why it worked because, you know, the caddies were the everyman. You know, and, and the golf yeah. club members were the rich guys that you could make fun of, you know. And, and if you think about it, it's really the same formula that Animal House used, you know, like the slobs versus the, the snobs, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and if you think about it, too, there's basically two movies going on here. 
So like I mentioned, there's the, the story with the young caddies and their stories, mostly Michael O'Keefe's character, Danny Noonan. Yeah, Danny and, Noonan. It's me. Yeah. And that was really the crux of the movie. That was what they wanted to make the movie about. And then they also had this other thing going on with all these established stars, kind of like the, the adult content, you know, the, the, all the, 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 the talent that they brought in, you know, that just brought all the jokes to the movie. And it got to the point when once they, they got into the editing process that the young caddy story just kind of got sidelined, right? And it becomes almost secondary. Like if you remember the opening scene with the really busy house, that was based on Brian Doyle Murray's family when he was growing up. They had nine kids in their family. You know, him and Bill and John and Joel. And 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 he worked at a golf course as a caddy, you know, when he was young in Illinois. And even that baby Ruth chocolate bar scene was apparently based on one of Bill Murray's pranks that he played when he was a kid. A kid. Yeah, I'd heard that too. Yeah. But that whole kind of young caddy story with Danny Noonan and stuff and how he really needs a role model. Remember, like there was like with the priest you know, and, and then he dresses up in the, in the yacht club getup and, and Ty Webb is his mentor. Like that was that whole story just kind of got pushed to the side, you know. But um, I want to just talk a little bit about um, I, I think Harold Ramis is important. And, and I want to talk about it because if you think like he guy was legendary, man, like he started with things like Second City. He was actually replaced on the main stage in Second City by John Belushi. So when, when Harold Ramis left in 71, Belushi took over for him. And, but he did like National Lampoon Radio Hour. He was the original lead writer for SCTV in Toronto. And he wrote, co-wrote Animal House and Meatballs. And I think if you look at the inner circles of sort of the comedy scene in the 70s and 80s, there's probably no one more influential than this guy. And I think a lot of people knew him, you know, for his work in front of the camera because he was Russell Ziski in Stripes and um, Egon Spangler in Ghostbusters. Yeah, Ghostbusters, yeah. But he was never, never all that comfortable in front of the camera. But behind the scenes, I think he was one of the most important figures in American comedy in the last 50 years. Well, yeah, between writing, directing, and I'm sure he has some producing credits as well. Mm-hmm. Um, his, his influence certainly touched on all of those greats that you said, and he worked for a long time. And he, he influenced a lot of, uh, of up and coming talent over the years. Right. And, um, yeah, no, I, I got to agree with you. He definitely, um, he definitely is important to comedy. Like I'm just sort of looking at his producer credits here. Mm-hmm. Like he did back to school with Roddy Dangerfield and Groundhog Day. And I mean, some of these, obviously Groundhog Day, he was a director as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, but it's like he also still he even um, had small acting roles in uh, in some sort of newer comedies. Mm-hmm. Not that he was the star, but just to be tangentially um, associated with it. Like he was in the the um, the movie Knocked Up with Seth Rogen. Mm-hmm. He plays Seth Rogen's dad. Yep. Um, he was in Orange County. He was in High Fidelity. Uh, you know, he he was in Airheads. It's like, again, he may not have been the star. He may not have, you know, had a huge hand in it. But the fact that they the, the powers that be that were putting these other projects together, even into the the late nineties and early two thousands wanted Harold Ramis to be involved in some way. And I got to think even just casting him in a small role and knowing he'll be on the set a few days, I got to think the writer, the director, the producer are all like, well, good. When he's here, we can, we can bounce some ideas off. Yep. Him. Let's, let's pick, pick his, his brain. brain. Yep, yeah. Sure. And I, I got to think from what I understand, again, I never don't know him, but from what I was reading, like he sounded like the kind of guy that, that would certainly be willing to offer that kind of assistance for the betterment of the project. 
And uh, yeah, and I think that this this 1980 film here with Caddyshack sort of cements his authority to like, this is who I've been up until now. And then bang, I've got this. But as we said, it wasn't this runaway box office super hit smash success. But I think the people within the industry and the performers that are in this movie at this point, like they certainly recognize that that what he brought to the table. Yeah, I mean, really, it was like this movie. It was Vacation and Groundhog Day. That was really what he was known for as a director. But, you know, he'll always be Russell Ziski in Stripes, too, for me. Like, I remember he died in 2014. We've talked about this before, you know, when celebrity, certain celebrities pass away and, mm-hmm. you know, it, 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 you know, it impacts you. Like, that was one for me. I always liked Harold Ramis. I thought he was good. I, one thing I want to talk about in this movie is the location of the movie. Yeah. So Orion Studios made this movie. And they actually had a pretty good reputation for letting filmmakers do just kind of do their own thing you know like they didn't really get involved a lot and kenny and ramus didn't give a crap they wanted to get as far away from hollywood as they could like they didn't even trust the studio that was like you know a good studio and so the movie's supposed to take place in illinois right but the problem was not only did they want to get away from the studio all the golf courses in california had palm trees so they're like well we can't film here right so they ended up shooting at Rolling Hills Country Club in Davie, Florida, of all places. It's a suburb of Miami. It's just outside of like Fort Lauderdale. And but the problem was they were right beside the Fort Lauderdale airport. So they had to deal with 75 planes a day going overhead. And there was also all this condo construction going on right now. They worked it into the script because they made it be uh, the cervic condos. But uh, they had to deal with the noise from it all and the construction. At one point, there was a hurricane, you know. It just probably wasn't the best experience for Harold Ramis because this was his first time directing, you know. So, uh, I don't know. Luckily, he was a pretty laid back guy. <laughs> I guess there was that, right? So, let me let me jump in on a little tangent on what yeah. you just mentioned. So, because they filmed it in Florida, even though that's not where the movie actually takes place – uh, in preparation for uh, for our podcast, I went on to Netflix and Crave and HBO and Amazon, and I'm like, where can I stream Caddyshack? Mm-hmm. And it's not available in, as part of the base service in Canada on any of the streaming platforms that I no. that I pay for. So I thought, okay, well, maybe I own a copy. I don't. Maybe I've already got one on the computer from downloading it from somewhere. I don't. I couldn't believe that I didn't have my own copy of this movie. And given that we're in the COVID world right now, I can't even just call up my buddy and be like, hey, can I come over for a bit and pick up a couple of your DVDs? So I went to Amazon and sure enough, you can get the Blu-ray for 20 bucks or the DVD for $8 and it'll be arrived by tomorrow. And I thought, well, go for it. I can pay eight bucks. Here you go. I had a gift certificate for Christmas. So perfect. So anyway, it shows up the next day. And when I open up the DVD, it's uh, a clearly a Canadian uh, manufacturing of it. And so in Canada, for, for our listeners that are not from Canada, all packaging needs to be in English and French if it's available, uh, something that could be purchased anywhere in the country. And so with things like DVDs, you have all of the English packaging and then you have like all the French titles in smaller letters beneath it. So they have in big, bold letters, Caddyshack. And then underneath it, and I'm going to butcher this French, and I apologize to any listener who can speak better French than We're I We're not all bilingual up here. No, th- this guy definitely not. <laughs> underneath Caddyshack, the French yeah. title is uh, Miami Fault Le Faire. And I was like, <laughs> okay, does what does that mean? So I went to the Google Translate, and it yeah. means in my the literal word-for-word translation is in Miami, 
must do it, which I assume is supposed to mean do it in Miami. So because the movie was shot in Florida, the French title is called do it in Miami. Who knew? That makes sense. Jeez. Yep. And, and, and the other thing is too, like the, 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 the they shot it in, in, like I say, in Florida, just outside of, uh, outside of Miami there, but there was no palm trees. Funny enough anywhere on the on the site so it actually looked like it was illinois you know um but in addition to that i want to talk about the cast a little bit because to me that's one of the strongest points of this movie oh, that, that sure. and the writing but uh Chevy Hang on, Chase. before yeah okay yeah no, no no let's do the cast and then at the end i'm going to ask you who's your favorite character in this movie okay so let's talk about okay. the cast and keep that question in the back of your mind okay so chevy chase i want to start with because uh, his character ty webb is pretty much based on Harold Ramis and Doug Kenny, you know, that Zen Buddhist kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Chevy Chase had left SNL basically at the beginning of the second season because he was like this big breakout star, you know, that they had. And the thing was, he needed this movie as much as this movie needed him. Because at the time, you know, now he had two movies with Goldie Hawn that were really popular, Foul Play and Seems Like Old Times. But Oh, Heavenly Dog was a bomb. And, you know, if you think about it, like Under the Rainbow and Modern Problems, they both tanked. They came out a little bit after this, obviously. But, you know, it wasn't until he went back to his roots with Ramus again when he did Vacation, you know, that he became this big movie star. But, you know, he was such a big sort of, you know, coup for them. Because the studio said, we will let you make this movie on one condition. You got to get a star. Well, how the hell are they going to get a star? They don't know anybody. They're not Hollywood people. And luckily, Ramus knew Chevy Chase. And like I say, Chevy Chase needed something. So he got him into this. And, it, you know, it really got it made. And, um, and and he was great. He was fantastic in this role. You know, we, we did uh, Fletch, you know, a little while ago. And we liked him in that. But I, th- I thought he was just fantastic in this movie. Yeah, he was, um, again, I, I, when we did the Fletch podcast, I talked about this. I'm not the world's biggest Chevy Chase fan. I don't know. Just something about something about him. I've just never cared for, but I can certainly acknowledge his, his talent and his ability. And he was, he was great in this movie like this, this arguably, I mean, I think Fletch, in my opinion, I think Fletch was his, his, his peak. I don't think, I think that was his for a film role. I think that was the (laughs) best in my mind. That was the best he ever appeared on film better than in my mind, better than vacation any of the vacation movies and, and, but this Caddyshack is a very, very close second. He's not the overall star of the movie because it's such a huge ensemble. He does have sort of select clips and moments, but, uh, he's in this, the perfect amount for me. I don't love him as an actor, but I really like the character he brought to this film and every scene he's in with the exception of the one, uh, with, um, with Bill Murray, I thought was great. Uh, you didn't like that scene? We're going to come back to that. Okay. Didn't like that's, that at all. That's going to be interesting. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield. So this was his very first movie. So he was getting well-known at the time because he did a lot of uh, appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson as a stand-up comedian. And But he'd never done a movie. And, you know, it, the thing is, when you're a stand-up comic, you get your energy from one place. The audience, a live audience, and that live audience that laughs at your jokes, it not only gives you energy, but it gives you instant feedback. Like, so anyway, so he gets out there and he gets on the set for the first time and he starts hamming it up on the golf course. And after they call cut, he starts to panic 
right? And and he's like, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired on my first day of this movie. Uh, he was talking to one of the young caddies. And he's like, the cat, the caddy is saying like, well, what are you worried about? You, you know, you're doing great. You're doing awesome. And he's like, no, nobody's laughing at my jokes. And the guy's like, dude, we're shooting a movie. They can't laugh at your jokes. It'll ruin the shot. <laughs> so he wasn't getting that feedback that he was used to, you know, from that right. live audience. And, um, but oh man, he was absolutely fantastic. And he was perfect for this movie. And he probably made me laugh more than anyone else in this entire movie. Um, I don't know if I'd go that far. Oh, wait, for Rodney Dangerfield? Yeah. Yes, I, I agree. I, and personally, so my personal introduction to Rodney Dangerfield was in Back to School okay. as Thornton yep. Mellon, yep. which is one of my guilty pleasure comedy movies. And I would love to do that Keith on this Gordon, podcast yeah. down the road. Um, but coming to Caddyshack, because again, I didn't see Caddyshack until, geez, probably like the mid to late 90s was the first time I saw Caddyshack. Again, because I had no interest in golf until Tiger Woods became a thing. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, Ronnie Dangerfield is great. And we talked before about, you know, does the movie hold up? Unfortunately, some of Ronnie Dangerfield's material is a little bit of a red card just because some of the racial insensitivities. But that was his shtick. And mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, again, love him or hate him. It's like Don Rickles. It's like, hey, his his act is what it is. And you know what you're getting coming in. And so with Ronnie Dangerfield, same idea. You sort of know where he's going to go with some of this stuff. And a, some of it doesn't meet today's measuring stick but at the time it killed and it's it it is really good that i laugh at all the ronnie dangerfield sequences when i rewatch this no question and it's funny you got ronnie dangerfield who was a newbie making movies and on the other end of the spectrum you got ted knight who was more of a hollywood veteran like he was a comedy pro you know he you know and he basically represented sort of the all the snobs you know, he, the, the elitist rich white dudes yeah. that we talked about previously. And he, he fit it perfectly, which is not to say, I don't know if he was or wasn't in real life. His characters often were, but he played the role. He played the role perfectly. Whether or not he was like that in real life, I don't know. Uh, from everything that I've heard, you know, he was, you know, he, I don't think he was like that, but he was, he was a real professional, you know? Yes. That he, I one did, thing he, I he was adamant about was his hair. He never liked his hair being messed up. He just, his hair was perfect all the time, you know, but, um, you know, he just played that rich snob so good. But I mean, we're talking about the guy, you know, the guy from the seventies from the Mary Tyler Moore show, like he'd won tons of Emmys. Like he, yeah. he was like a Hollywood legend at this point. And, you know, I just, I, I think it's funny. Like he's not even that good of a golfer, <laughs> you know, like he's just this rich snob guy who loves golfing. He's not very good at it. Um, but I would think you could make the argument that he was probably the strongest cast member, you know, because he brought so much to his role. Um, another one yes. I want to mention. Sorry, let me jump on that yeah. for a second. So, I mean, we've talked about the art of comedy before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that makes comedy work so well is you know, the unexpected, right? The timing of it, the punchline, the, the juxtaposition of where is this little story going? Oh, it went in a direction I didn't didn't know. And that's humorous because it was so unexpected. And a lot of times for comedy to work, you need a straight man. And Ted Knight was perfect for that. You know, it's, it's everybody else got the laugh because Ted Knight's character was the butt of the joke in many cases. And I think that made it even more funny that it was someone who was so serious and professional and had that reputation outside of this movie, just as a, as an actor coming to play this role made it easier for the comedians to be funny at the expense of Ted Knight and his character. And to, to be the guy that just sits there and takes the punches like that, that says a lot. I believe that says a lot about the kind of, of professional you are. So 
Uh, Michael O'Keefe played Danny Noonan. I want to mention him just just briefly because the year before this, he was in a movie with Robert Duvall called The Great Santini. And he was actually nominated for Best Supporting Actor Oscar for that movie. Now, he lost to Timothy Hutton from Ordinary People, which, you know, totally I understand. Um, But he was also on the sitcom Roseanne. I don't know if you ever watched that. I didn't watch it all that much, but he was on it for a while. He was Laurie Metcalf's husband. But no, I didn't know that. I I only watched that show on and off when it was on originally. Yeah, I mean, like, other than that and the great Santini, I mean, he did a lot of Broadway roles, but he never really did much else, you know. But it brings us to maybe one of the best cast members, too, was Bill Murray. And he had just come off doing Meatballs, you know, a very successful movie, one of my personal favorites, as you know. I don't know if I've ever mentioned that or not, Derek. Well, it might have come up once or twice, but uh, yeah. (laughs) But his role in this movie as Carl Spackler the thing was, it was supposed to be a cameo. He didn't, in the original script, he didn't even have a single line of dialogue. So they bred him on and, and he comes onto the set and he just starts improvising. So they just left the camera going, right? And they just capture all this stuff. And the thing was, his improvising was so good that he ended up getting way more screen time than they ever imagined. They didn't even plan for him to be in the movie at all. And like that scene where he does, he talks to the guy about the Dalai Lama, you know, like, yeah, I I love that scene. That might be one of the greatest improvised scenes in the history of comedy. He improvised the whole thing, you know? Well, and and part of what, part of what makes that scene so great for me, learning more about it after mm -hmm. is the caddy that he's got the, the pitchfork up to his neck. Like the caddy had no idea what what was happening and, and was genuinely like I know, scared. In, in fear for his life. And so that, that emotion you see on him where he's like trying to not be afraid, but you can sort of see he's a little yeah. afraid, like that's genuine. And so that once again, once you know that it sort of makes the scene a little funnier. Well, and the thing with Bill Murray's character too, like I say, so he, he improvised all these things. So he ended up being in the movie more than they expected, but not only that, when they got down to edit this movie, there was like two and a half hours of extra footage. Like, I think the movie was like four hours long or something like that, the original cut. They're like, oh my God, what are we going to do? And so they edit the movie down and then they realize there's still something missing. Like there's not, from a narrative point of view, there's not something that just kind of threads the whole movie together because it's it's all these sketches going on. You know, they got the caddy stories over here and the, the snobs are over here and, you know, the jokes are over here. And so they needed something to thread it all together. So they came up with this idea of the gopher you know, as a bit of a subplot. And then they thought, well, this gopher, what about if Bill Murray was trying to battle him? That will tie the whole movie together. And so that's what they did. That that gave him an even bigger role than they expected. And by the way, the gopher was a special effect created by John Dykstra. I don't know if you know him. He was the guy from Star Wars. And yeah, I was going to say, I recognize the name. Yeah, yeah that. So as a result, Bill Murray, Bill Murray ended up being like this huge part of the movie, but, you know, it didn't even really start that way. Um, mentioned that he improvised a lot of stuff. Improv is no longer really used in movies, but back then they used it all the time. And now there was a couple of reasons for this. They, a lot of these actors got their start and, and their training at Second City. And it also had something to do with the way movies were made. So, so back then... Versus now, you know, like, like, like now, if you make a movie, like I think of a movie like night at the museum, for example, there's so many special effects. How do you improvise around that? 
it's really hard, right? Yeah. But but yeah. back then, if you needed an extra scene, well, okay, we need an extra scene in this movie. Let's just stick Chevy Chase and Bill Murray in a room together and just let them create something. And actually, speaking of that scene, you mentioned you didn't like that scene, right? So tell no. me a bit about that, why you didn't like that scene. Because I absolutely so, love that scene. Sure. So honestly, um, the Bill, Bill Murray's character... Uh, there's a lot of the stuff he does in this film. I'm just like, meh, take it or leave it. But the scene about with the talks about catting for the Dalai Lama, fantastic. And the scene where he's taking the driver to those flowers, and he's like Cinderella story, and like that again. Those two scenes for me Love with it. Bill Murray are great um, and very quotable. And when I used to work at Blockbuster Video, they used to put both of those segments of both of those in the trailers that they played in the, in the video store. So I've heard some of those lines over and over and over again. They're just ingrained in my mind. Um, but again, as I mentioned, I'm not the world's biggest Chevy chase fan and I wasn't the world's biggest fan of Bill Murray's character in this movie. And that whole scene with the two of them in the, sh- in the, the shed with just the improvisational nature of it, I, I, it just, it didn't do anything for me. I thought, eh, whatever. It, it almost felt like, it, just like you said, well, we've got these two stars. They're both from, uh, they're both got an improv background. They're both known for being on Saturday Night Live. Let's give them a chance to riff on each other a bit and, and just see where it goes. And I kind of felt like they didn't, again, this is just my opinion, but I kind of felt like they didn't really play well off each other. It was almost like they both had an idea of what they wanted to do and neither one was willing to give in to the other one to, to like, you, you know, like, you're a performer. Improv is a lot about give and take, right? Yeah. Like you've got to work off of what the last guy said, and then you've got to set him up so that you can do what you worked off. And I didn't really feel that, that this scene did that as well as I was expecting it to. Uh, again, totally just my opinion, not a, not a professional. Um, and I think the fact that these weren't necessarily two performers that I was super thrilled with in the first place, I had very high expectations. I did not feel they came anywhere near meeting them in this scene. And to me, when I like normally when I watch this scene, I just fast forward through it. I'm like, I'm not interested. Fast forward, get to the next part that I actually want to see. So the whole subplot about the gophers. Yeah, I thought was stupid, but I understand the need for it Mm -hmm. in the movie. I just I didn't care for it. It's one of the things people a lot of people remember about the movie. But just go back to improv for a second, because you're right. I have done a lot of improv back in my my day. Um, But when these guys were making this scene and in and, and this movie in general, like it wasn't just ad libbing. Like, like these guys stuck to the improv process. Like they were excellent. They, they were some of the best in history at doing this. And oh, for sure. They, yeah, like I said, I, I, I'll acknowledge that for sure. Well, I mean, they got their training in second city and, you know, SNL and national lampoons, radio hour and lemmings and all those places. So it, the only way improv works is if the actors roll with it, you know, like you said, and since the, a lot of the other secondary actors in this movie, like Cindy Morgan and Scott Columby, like they were inexperienced, right? So they just they just kind of went with it, right? So I don't know. I think improv really worked. But just going back to this scene for a second, you were saying you didn't think it worked. There was a lot going on in this in this scene. So so basically, the reason why they shot the scene in the first place was they got the movie done, and they realized, oh my god, we got our two biggest stars here, Bill Murray and Chevy Chase, and they don't do a scene together. Well, <laughs> that's not good. We need to have a scene with them. So they stuck him in this. They actually, I think they they went out for lunch um, and uh, they, they talked about it. They were like, okay, you know, what are we going to do? And I think it was uh, Kenny and and, and Ramus and, and the two stars went out for lunch. Said, okay, what are we going to do? Let's do the scene. So, you know, the other thing is 
is that Bill Murray joined the Saturday Night Live cast in season two, basically as a replacement for Chevy Chase. So there was a little bit of bad blood between these two guys. Now, legend has it, they apparently got into a fist fight back in, you know, uh, 1978 behind the scenes. Chevy Chase came back to SNL as a guest host and apparently he was really rude on the set and he was acting like this, you know, big Hollywood, you know, jerk, right? So him and Murray got into it. But uh, anyway, when it came time to do this scene together on this movie, some people were a little bit worried, right? Like thinking, like, how's this going to go off, right? But the scene went off without a hitch. I I think it's one of the absolute funniest parts of the whole movie. Bill Murray lives basically in just like, just a dump. (laughs) It's such a crappy place where he lives. It's so bad. Even he doesn't have any respect for it. At one point he gets out a leaf blower (laughs) to to clean up the living room. Remember he's blowing like the pizza boxes. Yep. yep. And then the thing that makes me laugh more than anything else. I mentioned this to you before. When he's in the middle of his conversation with Chevy Chase. He just turns and he just spits. (laughs) And it's this big massive loogie. (laughs) Like, Like I don't know. To me, I laugh every time I see that. I think the scene is great. I don't know. No, I, I, I don't care for it. And I think uh, part of part of what you were saying about how there was bad blood between Chevy Chase and Bill Murray. I, mm-hmm. To me, once I heard that afterwards and like once I read it in the trivia, I, I've, I've heard uh, or read things where they said like that scene was – um, there was some bad blood when they were doing that and they had a hard time getting it. Cause it, like you said, it was done at the last minute after everyone thought they were done the movie and you had these two big actors and it was like, neither one of them felt that they should play second fill to the other guy. And, and I always, when I watch the scene, I always get that vibe, like that these guys are deliberately trying to screw over the other guy to demonstrate that they're, they're the better man. And I don't know. I just, for me, it doesn't work, but that, that's just me. We'll agree to disagree on yeah, that. Yeah, that's fine. I mentioned before Caddyshack uses a lot of the Animal House formula. Yeah. But the other thing, too, is that this movie reminds me a lot of the classic Marx Brothers movies. You know, like, first of all, there's not just one star. You know, there's there's a bunch of them. There's, there's always, like, a whole bunch of stuff going on. There's all these subplots. You know, there's there, there's some of the subplots have more of a serious tone. Um, there's just jokes flying like crazy. There's sight gags. There's verbal sparring. You know, it, it's almost like Rodney Dangerfield is Groucho. Bill Murray is Harpo. And Chevy Chase is kind of cool in the middle of everything. He's kind of like Chico. And, um, and the other thing, too, is Mark Brothers movies usually are about these kind of like slobs that are up against kind of the rich elite, like with Margaret Dumont's character and stuff. So I don't know. It always kind of stuck out to me on that. Um I want to mention a couple, or at least ask you about maybe some of your favorite scenes and some of your favorite quotes. But before sure. we do that, there is a couple of criticisms of this movie that I just want to address. Okay. Yep. Two of them. Number one is some of the sex scenes and the sexuality, especially of Lacey Underhill's character. Sydney Morgan was absolutely perfect for this part. And she had never acted before this. She was a DJ in Chicago and she went down and, and interviewed for this. Um, Back in those days, you know, women just didn't, you know, initiate, you know, sexuality and and things like that, especially in movies. But she did it here. And I think, you know, it took a lot of, it it got some criticism, but I think it was a bit ahead of its time. Yeah. Well, I, again, we've talked about this before, Mm -hmm. um, just the, 
the difficulties of women to be in important roles in movies, and especially in an ensemble like this where, you know, she's the eye candy. We need someone who's pretty and willing to take her clothes off. It's like, well, I, I mean, power to her for having the confidence to do it. Um, it's unfortunate that that's what it took to get the job, but that that was the way that it worked in that time frame. But yeah, I mean, she's certainly beautiful and, and attractive to look at. And yes, I, I agree with your assessment that the character they gave her was a little bit uh, left of center compared to what you might normally see in these kinds of movies where it's just, Hey, here's my, you know, this is, this is the guy's girlfriend, or this is the, you know, the, the slutty girl in the movie. It's like, she, she definitely was trying to uh, hold her own when she was uh, in the scenes with Chevy chase, where he, he picks her up at the party and brings her back to his place and stuff. Obviously it's Chevy doing his thing, but she, she seems to be able to hold her own in those scenes. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that she did a good job given what they gave her to work with. The other big criticism is Sarah Holcomb's character, Maggie O'Hooligan. Yep. With the accent. Yep. That she put on. And the thing was, this movie was originally written to be about these caddies that were like Irish Catholics and, you know, them working at the golf course. But a lot of it got cut out, right? So then you're what the parts that you're left with, like, I mean, if, if you you think of the the guys that made this movie, the filmmakers, to them, it made perfect sense to have her talking with an Irish accent. She was an Irish Catholic girl from Illinois, you know, in this movie. And but when the movie's all kind of cut together, it just seems weird and out of place, especially when all that caddy kind of subplot story got cut out and it absolutely killed her career. <laughs> like it just it really did. A lot of people just thought it was weird. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. If if I if I could make some edits to this movie, I would cut out all the scenes with Maggie. Um, I mean, I get that you want to demonstrate that Michael O'Keefe's character has this girlfriend and mm. and that, you know, there's the perm- promiscuity and there's the oh, my God, she thinks she could be pregnant. Um, I, but I don't necessarily feel, feel that that added to the movie that we got. This this seemed to me like it was more. Just focus on what's happening at the golf course itself. I'm not overly interested in all these tangential storylines that, you know, don't really seem to add a lot of value to, in my opinion, that didn't really add a lot of value. Um, The fact that she had the Irish accent definitely threw me the first time. I thought, you know, why is this person, why would you have someone, like this was obviously a deliberate choice by the people making the movie to have this performer use this accent. I don't know if that was her real accent or if she put it on for the movie, but Um, it just seemed out of place with nobody else speaking with an Irish accent. Like even if two or three other people had it, you would sort of go, oh, well, they're maybe they live near a community where there's a lot of Irish immigrants. So you have these people with accents, Uh, you know, I I mean, I couldn't care less that she had an accent. It's just that as the only one, it really stood out. And given that that part of the plot with her in it just sort of seemed unnecessary to the overall story sort of was the nail in the coffin to me. And and like she'd worked with these guys before. She was in Animal House, you know. Remember, she was the mayor's daughter that uh, Pinto was with and stuff. So, but anyway, do you, do you have some favorite scenes? You said you didn't like the scene with Carl and Ty in Carl's place. I don't know why. One of my favorite scenes in the movie. Um, yeah, not any a big favorite fan. scenes that you did did like though? So the two that I mentioned There's before so with Bill Murray are both great. The one where he talks about being the caddy for the Dalai Lama. Where, where, it's a Cinderella uh, story. Yeah. No, no, no. This is the one where he's got the pitchfork where he's like, uh, oh, right, right. Yeah. Right. He goes and he's it's like, like uh, going for and then I'm like, uh, uh, hey, Lama, how about a little something for the effort? He's like, he's going to stiff me. And he's like, there's no money. <laughs> but it, then what does he say? He's like, gunga, gulunga. And he's Gunga-gunga-gunga. like, it means uh, 
you will have enlightenment upon your death. So, you know, I got that going for it. Got me. that going for it. So, again, I'm sure I butchered the exact quote, but <laughs> you remember the scene. And then the other one where he's he's got the driver and he's like being the the announcer on the the sports channel where he's like, oh, it's Cinderella's story. He's like, oh. He's got that grass whip and he's hitting the yeah. flowers. Yeah. 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 And then he's like, it's so, in the hole. It's in the yeah. hole. Yeah. It's yeah. That, hole. that was great. And oh, I was asking you before, like, what do you, who's your favorite character? I love Rodney Dangerfield's character. I think he's fantastic. I know I'm biased God, because I really so like Rodney Dangerfield. Oh. And I think that he has some of the best lines in this movie. And I no. think the fact that they play him against Ted Knight makes his lines even better. And which we've already talked about, but I, uh, for me, I see it like I I've only golfed a handful of times. I'm terrible, but a lot of my friends play a lot of golf and are quite good. I got a buddy who earned a golf scholarship. That's how good he was. Wow. And he was a semi pro for a long time. Like he's made a, a lot of his, his life decisions have been around golf. So it's like, I, I know some guys that are really good and I'm really bad. And so when I see this movie, it's like you always figure, oh, well, you know, who am I? If this was my peer group, it's like uh, I got to be the Rodney Dangerfield guy. I'm loud. I'm obnoxious. I want to gamble on every swing. Uh, you know, I want the music going. I want to, you know, be the life of the party. Like he's the one that I think that would be me uh, if I'm in this movie. Well, assuming I'm not one of the caddies, which who are we kidding? I would probably be one of the caddies because I can't play golf anyway. Um, but no, Rodney Dangerfield, definitely my favorite. And so, I, I mean, I love even just the, like the, the beginning scene where he's in the, um, he's in the pro shop and he's like, he's making fun of the, the hat. And yeah. then he turns and he sees the judge. Oh, but it looks great on yeah. you. But you get a free um, bowl of soup when you buy a hat. Like yeah. This. Yeah. And <laughs> looks then good there's on one, you though. Yeah. One of his lines that I love is, um, when he's at the party and he cuts in to dance with, uh, with the judge's wife and he's like, how would you like to earn $8 the hard way? <laughs> Yeah, that is so funny. Oh, oh God. Uh, I, I, yeah. I laughed. Same thing. I watched this movie to prep for this podcast, and I just died laughing when he said that to her because it just struck Like, I forgot about it, you know? And he just drops this line like, what? Yeah, he just doesn't really, just because he likes to party, but he just yeah. wants to piss off Ted Knight, too. Like, oh, he wants to get oh, under yeah, his skin, sure. right? Yeah. So now there's one other. There's and one then other he qu- says to her too, "Boy, you must have been something before electricity." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh man. Uh, there's one other scene um, that I just want to talk about again. Not necessarily my favorite, but it's been it's been riffed in pop culture a few times. Where um, the judge and his grandson, after they play some golf, they're coming to the snack bar. <laughs> And the grandson's like, I want a hamburger, no, a cheeseburger. I want a fries. I want a milkshake. And then he yells out. I think he even slaps him. He's like, you'll get nothing and like it. There was a, uh, there was a family guy episode where uh, Stewie wants to meet the cast of Star Trek, the next generation. Right. And so he has them, he creates a transporter and they all have to come and spend the day with him. And the whole gang from Star Trek goes to McDonald's. And when they're in the drive through uh, Will Wheaton's character, Wesley Crusher, he goes, he uses that line. I want a hamburger, you know, a cheeseburger, you know, some fries. And then Patrick Stewart slaps him and goes, you'll get nothing and like it. And it's funny because when I saw that on Family Guy the first time, I forgot that's where the reference was from. And right. I just thought it was a funny scene. So I laughed. And then when I rewatched Caddyshack a couple of years later and I realized it was word for word, that scene, it made both scenes so much funnier in my mind. So again, not my favorite scene, but it's, it has definitely put a smile on my face when I see it every time from now on. There's one scene at the bar that I think it's, it's not in every cut of the film because there's multiple cuts of this movie because when they, when I was a kid, they used to show this on TV 
And when mm-hmm. they put this this movie on TV, they'd have to cut out so much of it. They would cut oh, yeah. out the, the, the drug the, use, the chocolate bar scene, which is, you know, probably most people's favorite scene from the movie. They cut out the whole scene. So they had to replace it with something. Wow. And there was one scene where remember the 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 bishop. By the way, yes. Henry Wilcoxon had he had done like silent films. He was yeah. in the Ten Commandments for crying out loud. And he's in Caddyshack. He's at the bar and he's really drunk. And Ted Knight is like yelling at him and giving him crap because he's drinking too much. And then he's like, there is no God. <laughs> like, there's just something about that scene always made me laugh. And I also liked uh, when Sandy, the Scottish head groundskeeper tells Carl he's got to kill every gopher on the golf course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's like, well, you know, call me crazy, but if I kill all the golfers, they're going to throw me in jail and knock away the keys. Like, not the golfers, the golfers. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can do that. We don't even need a reason. <laughs> yeah. He's got to do that with the with the golfers. <laughs> like, <laughs> the whole scene is just so crazy. I just, I love it. And um, then again, the scene, the scene that I like when the two of them are together that you don't, when He's, he, he, um, Chevy Chase mentions that he's got a pool and Carl's like oh I'd really like that I'd like to come into your pool he's like well we've got a pond and a pool the, the, the pond would be good for you <laughs> the way yeah. he drops that line I thought was really funny and then yeah I, I also like when Roddy Dangerfield hits the ball and he and he, and he yells four and he hits four. Ted Knight in the crotch I should have yelled two and then probably my favorite line of the movie was Roddy Dangerfield in the restaurant and he passes gas and he's like, hey, did somebody step on a duck? I say that to my kids all the time, and they laugh every single time I say that. And I'm like, I just got that from Caddyshack. But, nice. oh, man, I just tell you, there's so many great scenes, so many great quotes. Yeah, a lot of good lines. Oh, very, man. This is a very quotable movie. It is. It really and that's, is. And that's, that's why this movie will never die. Because now that golf has become more mainstream and more people play golf, one of the things, again, not that I'm a big golfer, but just from speaking with my friends who are, they say every single time they're out on the course, somebody drops a couple of references to Caddyshack. It's like you can't help but do it. And it's that kind of longevity that that helps a movie like this just stay in the pop culture uh, mainstream forever. You will forever be quoting certain parts of this movie. You mean, like you said, you know, with the step on duck, the people around you may not understand where the joke is from, but the joke is still funny, especially if they're not familiar with it. Yeah. Or it's funny because it's the hundredth time they've heard it and it's still applicable. So I think, I think there's, despite some of the, the, the timeliness and some of the, like some of the, the things that are of its time, um, for the most part, this movie does hold up quite well and it will continue to be, um, it'll continue to be a, a favorite of a lot of people mm-hmm. and people will continue to quote it on the golf course. So it's not going anywhere. I love this movie. Uh, you want to rate it for me out of 10? What would you give it? Uh, I'd probably give it an eight. I will give it a nine and a half. Wow. I like it that much. I think it is one of the best comedies ever made. It's one of the most timeless comedies ever made, and it's definitely one of the better movies to come out of the 70s and 80s. I I can't believe it's taken us this long to get around to doing this movie. Love this movie. I love it a yeah. lot. But. No, it's it's strong. I mean, on a on a different day, I might go as high as eight and a half, but mm-hmm. uh, I think I think eight is a good is a good uh, resting point for this one for me. Uh, it's one of those ones where if it's on TV, as long as it's not on a channel that cuts stuff out, yeah, I'm probably gonna sit and watch at least the next twenty to thirty minutes because it doesn't matter where it is in the movie, you know, something great is is about to happen. Uh, like, oh, I'll just watch till the end of this next scene. Oh, wait, and then that other scene. Okay, and then, and then, the, okay, and next thing you know, half the movie's gone by. Right. And that, to me, is always the good sign 
uh, is a good sign if a movie has that uh, that draw. If it's something you want to sit down and watch again and again and that you don't mind jumping in halfway. And for me, that's it. I've probably only seen Caddyshack start to finish like maybe four times. Oh but there are some scenes I've seen 50 times, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's I sat down and I caught the movie halfway through or whatever it might be. Um, and, and that certainly speaks to the strength of the film. Right. Okay. On that note, let's have some fun with caveman over to you, my friend. What have you got for us this week? All right. So, uh, we're going to be a little on the nose tonight. I'm going to ask you trivia questions about golfing in the movies. Okay. Now they're going to start easy ish and get progressively harder. The first few questions are literally about movies about golf. Like you should get these no problem. But then I'm going to move into movies that are absolutely not about golf, but have some key scenes that involve golf. Okay. So those might be a little more challenging for you, but I wanted to get at least 10 questions and I couldn't come up with 10 movies that had golfing scenes that weren't about golf without going really, really obscure. So uh, first three are are golf movies. And then, you know, the last seven are about movies that that have golf scenes in them. Okay. Okay. All right. So, and in every case, I'll tell you the year the movie came out. As a sort of a little hint, but I don't think you'll really need that hint. Okay. It never gets old watching the Price is Right host Bob Barker get the best of this film star in a good old-fashioned fistfight in the classic comedy from 1996. Name the movie. Uh, It was Adam Sandler. It was Happy Gilmore. Yes, it was. (laughs) That was so good, yes. Yeah. And as a Boston Bruins fan, every time I go... I'm from Toronto. So when I go to Toronto Maple Leafs games and watch the Bruins and the Leafs, they of course play that scene of Bob Barker uh, beating up Adam Sandler because Sandler's wearing a Boston Bruins sweater and he gets his butt handed to him. And so the fans in Toronto love to see that when the Bruins are in town. So of course that scene's not going anywhere. All right. Next one in this 1996 romantic comedy, the hero Roy McAvoy makes a $400 bet that he can outplay his opponent using only the tools in the trunk of his car, which include a baseball bat, a shovel, a garden hoe, and a rake. And it was from what year? 1996, romantic comedy. Is it Tin it's Cup? A, it's about golf. Tin Cup? With, uh, yes. 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 Tin Cup McAvoy. Nice. That's a, it's a really good scene. All right. This one might be a little tougher because it's, it's a lot newer, but okay. In this 2005 biopic, 20-year-old Francis Wilmot learns that his amazing skill is no match for the class boundaries when he competes in the 1913 U.S. Open against his idol, 1900s U.S. Open champion, Englishman Harry Varden. I want to say, was this that, what was that guy's name? LaBeouf? Yep, Shia LaBeouf plays the main character. He's quite young in this film. I haven't seen it. I'm familiar with it. Is it like the greatest goal? I, uh, You're I getting there. You're close. Know. I don't know. It, uh, so close. It's called The Greatest Game Ever Played. Oh, okay. Yes. I, I'm, I'm yeah. familiar with close. it, but I, I don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, it was quite, it was good. I haven't seen it in a while. I mean, it came out in 2005. I think I want to say it's Disney. So it's sort of that family friendly. It's quite good. Even if you're not a big fan of Shia LaBeouf, but he's quite young in this one before he started getting all weird. Yeah. All it right. Weird. Now we move on to movies that are not golf movies, but have okay. golf scenes. Okay. All right. This 1999 Michael Bay disaster film 
begins with Harry Stamper driving golf balls off of his deep sea oil rig, trying to hit a diesel ship filled with environmental protesters from Greenpeace. Oh, I want to say, was that Armageddon? Yes, it was. Yes. Next one. In 2002, this MTV show got its first big screen adaptation, and one of the most memorable scenes has the heroes using air horns to deliberately disrupt the swings of unsuspecting golfers. Oh, that was, um, oh, Jackass. Yes. Yes. Woo. Oh, I rewatched these scenes when I was doing the trivia. Oh, my God, I laughed so much. <laughs> All right. In this 1993 Joel Schumacher film, an ordinary man becomes frustrated with the various flaws he sees in society. So he violently lashes out against them, including a memorable scene where he confronts a trio of old white privileged golfers who try to hit him with their golf balls when he won't leave the fairway. Schumacher from 93. I don't know. It stars Michael Douglas. It was called Falling Down. Oh, Falling Down. Oh, yes. I have heard of that one. Okay. If you haven't seen it in a while. I didn't know that was Schumacher. Yeah, it was really good. I did a university paper on that movie. It was really good. All right. The writer and star of this 1996 independent film enjoys an afternoon of golf with his buddy, but has to endure endless complaining about not being cast as goofy. No idea. It was Swingers. John oh, Favreau. No, I have not seen that. I heard it was good. I haven't seen it. Yeah, that was a good scene. All right. Oh, you're going to love this. In this 2007 post-apocalyptic film, oh God. one man survives a biological pandemic and spends part of his days perfecting his golf swing from the tail of a Lockheed A-12 Blackbird aboard the intrepid Sea Air Space Museum in New York City. I have no idea. <laughs> That is Will Smith in I Am Legend. Okay. I'll take your word for it. Yeah. It was really good. Mm -hmm. All right. A couple of easy ones coming into the end here. I hope so. In, in this 1996 family-friendly film, a pro athlete poses for a photo after getting his very first hole-in-one, only to be snatched away and disappear before the photo can be taken. No idea. Stars Michael Jordan. Space oh, Jam. Oh, Space Jam. Oh, that's like Space Yancey's Jam. favorite movie. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. Well, then hopefully Yancey got that. <laughs> no, I have never seen it. So. Okay. This one I know you're going to get. I deliberately put this at the end. I think this is a nice, easy one for you. Last question. The protagonist plays a round of 18 holes and switches the title villain's Slazenger 1 for a Slazenger 7 when he catches him cheating to win a bet in this 1964 spy film. Is it uh, Dr. No? It is not Dr. No, but it is James Bond. It's Goldfinger. Oh, it's Goldfinger. Oh, jeez. I thought you were have that. I would have that oh, for sure. I thought maybe. That was close. All right. So some of those are a little tougher than, uh, again, it was hard to find movies that, that had golf stuff in it. So, Well, and it, um, it goes to show like what we talked about before. Golf is like not really in the mainstream, and it's not been depicted in film all that much. Well, and the, the, a lot of the references I had were newer. Like, I'm looking through the trivia questions mm -hmm. here. I have, uh, let's see, do I have any from the 80s? I have the Goldfinger no. was from 1964, and then all these other movies are 93 or later, which I know is a little outside of your wheelhouse, so I, I knew you might struggle with a couple of these. But When it comes yeah. to golf in the movies, it's Caddyshack and Happy Gilmore, and that's it. Pretty much, yeah. Everyone you know? knows those. Yeah. yeah. But... 
Anyway, so uh, we finally got around after six years, finally got around to reviewing Caddyshack, which is great. Like I say, after you and I have, you know, enjoyed this movie for many years together. Um, and next week, we're going to get back together and uh, we're going to do a topic. So we'll come back and do a top five list or something like that. So that'll be great. But until then, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Meyer saying, thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 